Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Well, we have talked about the climate change crisis a lot on this podcast, and more and more people are talking about it. Some politicians are even trying to do something about it, or at least... At least they're talking as well. But is that only part of the problem we face? What about something quite old-fashioned? Something that's been a big concern since the 1970s, but we seem to have forgotten about it. That's how sustainable are the resources that we are chewing up. Forget about the climate for now. What if we were to run out of oil or copper or the precious metals that we use for microprocessors? Is this the real crisis we face? And how close are we to that crisis? Simon Michaud from the Geological Survey of Finland joins us today. Steve Keen is here too. And I'm Phil Dobby. And this is the Debunking Economics Podcast. Welcome along. Well, one of the arguments given against the assertions made in the limits to growth back in 1972 was that overpopulation won't lead to depleted resources because humankind will always find a way, will improve agricultural yields, will find more resources, will use those resources more effectively. And that's how we didn't have a population crisis. In fact, the population has risen from 3.8 billion in 1972 to 7.8 billion today, more than doubled since the Club of Rome. And whilst we might not be using much more energy per head, we are using a bit more, uh, but we're certainly not using less. So we're not using it more efficiently, uh, but that could be because we're using it more. You know the old argument, if you make a car twice as uh, efficient on fuel, you'll just drive more. Well, in 1974, according to data from the BP Statistical Review of World Energy, Global primary energy consumption was 76,000 terawatt hours in 1974. In 2019 which is the latest numbers I can find, it was 171,000 terawatt hours. So again, it's more than doubled. Add coal, uh, oil and gas together, that accounts for almost 80% of that consumption. That can't go on forever, is it? can it? So aside from climate change, isn't there a risk that we will actually run out of the resources that we we continue to depend on, fossil fuels and and, and other resources as well? Well, Simon Michaud reckons so. He is Associate Professor at the Geological Survey of Finland. Uh, Steve Keen is with us too, of course. Uh, So, Simon, uh, it's not just energy... We're using minerals to build, we've got steel production and the like, and obviously the, the precious metals we need to make, microprocessors, and demand for all of that just keeps growing. Yeah, so it's um, it's a bit more complicated than that even too. It's, it's like we've got like six or seven macro-scale problems rolling in together. Mm. Right, and, and so uh, the thing, I actually met uh, Paul Ehrlich, who actually made the, um, we were in the lecture circuit together, and he made the, uh, claim that we've got a population problem, and uh, and um, the, uh, he made the prediction that um, we are not we're not going to be able to grow enough food. So in in my work, and he was he was dismissed because the petrochemical revolution kicked off and and uh, industrial agriculture started up. And I actually have done some work fairly recently uh, based around the idea that Paul was right, where industrial agriculture is degrading land at a horrible rate, and we are dependent on finite non-renewable resources like phosphate, rock, and gas 
to make the fertilizer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so so one of the problems is we've got a food shortage some, t- some decades in the future because industrial agriculture may well collapse uh, unless someone pulls a rabbit out of a hat. So, uh, and, uh, the but what, could that, what, what could that be? Because, I mean, if... Uh... Well, I sit, I sit in, in senior meetings uh, every now and then, and there was a senior meeting from the BASF chemical company, and they see the future is a more advanced version of petrochemicals and herbicides and pesticides like Monsanto's glyphosate linked with um, AI and robotics. Right. Right, and, and a genetically modified <clears throat> food. Um, is is so they're going to try and technology their way out, mm. but they haven't really understood some of the problems that are actually um, that, that they've, they've lined themselves up for. Well, I mean, and your point is that actually delivering that technology is going to be harder yeah. because it's going to rely on yeah. on minerals that just aren't going to be yeah. there, or if, if yes, they sorry. are there, they're going to become increasingly expensive. Yes. So back to the question. So the answer to the original complaints against the limits growth report is we will always find more minerals mm. and we will use them better. There's two answers. One is thermodynamics, right? And the second one is energy return on energy invested, which is uh, how much good stuff do we get back compared to the effort that we put in? And so there always will be minerals of some kind around the place, but they, we're getting to increasingly low grade. Yeah. Like the, for example, seawater is full of trace elements. Right, but the effort we've got to go through to extract a single unit of metal, if that is too high, it's not worthwhile. Well, you just need to look at shale oil, don't you, compared to the stuff that we've been getting out of Saudi Arabia that just jumps out the ground. Perfect example. So, so, uh, and in fact, what is also, uh, the modern society doesn't quite understand that we are energy dependent on everything. We're also dependent on oxygen. We need oxygen to breathe. But it's in our face and it's everywhere so much that we don't no longer see it. So we take it for granted that there will always be oxygen. We seem to see the same same way as energy. There always will be cheap energy. It will be at our fingertips and we can have whatever we want because it's been that way for 200 years. Right. And so, so this is the problem. So um, when, when we have actually sort of got, um, on one hand, we've mined out all the good deposits, all the high-grade, easy-to-get deposits, and now what's left is the large low-grade deposits that are hard to work, um, that cost a lot, and they, and they tend to be in what we call challenging postcodes. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, and, and so, so we have to work harder and harder. Yet at the same time, technology is demanding um, uh, more and more uh, material, mm. more, more and more material uh, on a, on a um, uh, yearly basis. So, so we, we're demanding more. Uh, the quality of the reserves are getting less, and our ability to get those reserves is dependent on energy, among other things. Potable water is another one. Uh, and, and the other thing that is also not understood, too, is that the, the fragility of the system compared to, say, a credit crunch, the available availability of money. But, but the big one is energy. All the other stuff is solvable if we've got energy. So is it, right. but is it because we, I mean, so the energy side, you would have thought, you know, it, it, some of that is solvable by using renewable energy. I don't know whether the scale uh, is, is realistic. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously not by the way you're laughing. But the other side is the technology, which is using precious metals that there's that, that, that there's not enough of. And we, we know that because no. we're already starting to see the price of microchips, for example, in, in increasing. And a lot of that is, okay, some of that is the short-term supply problems that we've been seeing because of the pandemic. But also there's just not enough of those precious metals that are available. 
Uh, we've also got shortages of things like copper. Mm. Like, like uh, yeah. the entire Andes mountain range in South America is one giant copper deposit, right? Oh. So the, the mining industry believes that you can just keep mining them at the Andes and, and it'll be fine. But the most of it is so low grade, right? That it, that it is it is um, we'll never be able to get to it all, right? And and so the what we call economic viability is a word of saying is it worthwhile? Yeah. And they because the price of copper uh, and they, they had the crash in 2012 for mining and, and everything like that and uh, uh, investment dried up and so they're no longer opening new mines and so there's a gap in investment and so now we've got um, a copper shortage now the shortfall between mining and demand has been made up from recycling of copper right but even that's coming to a, uh, to an end when the electric vehicle revolution takes off and we'll get to that in a moment because I've just done a big study on that, that that's why I laughed I will explain that. Mm. But, but so example, I'm, I'm used to I'm used to being laughed when I say stuff. Steve laughs all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it wears off after you a while. Him, 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 him. So, so um, for every wind turbine, for example, that you want to put up, there is a copper cable as thick as your leg right. that connects that wind turbine to the grid. Right. For every battery, there is copper components in it. For every electric vehicle, there is copper components in it. So. Um, we are looking at a um, a possible. When I say possible, because someone could pull a rabbit out of the hat and get another copper mine going, uh, going very quickly. But uh, we are looking at possible shortfalls of supply and demand for copper a couple of years down the track, right? Which so when so when so when, so when two years like, I mean, when, when Boris Johnson was saying a year ago that Britain would become the yeah. world leader in low cost renewable energy production because wind power would be uh, cheaper than coal or gas and ten years from now. Uh, nine years now, because he said this yesterday, every every house in the country would be powered by wind and the target would rise from 30 gigawatts to 40 gigawatts uh, with, with more wind farms in the sea and floating windmills and all that sort of stuff. Uh, he was he was underestimating the impact of the cost of copper in all of that then. So, so yes, uh, please excuse my cynicism. I, I meet politicians every now and then. Some of them are pretty good, <laughs> right? But some of them are not that smart. Yeah, really? Mm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right. So so um, I've just done a big study, uh, which is about to be published. Uh, it could be a couple of days away um, that um, this report signing off. And I actually worked out how much extra electrical capacity will have to come off the grid to charge all batteries and if, if everything if fossil fuels was completely phased out how many electric vehicles how many batteries how many solar panels how many wind turbines right and mm. and so the number when i actually i did a bottom-up calculation not a top-down one like what the world economic forum did so which which everyone depends on and what i found is the problem in front of us is so much larger much much like orders of magnitude large, larger than than um what we are looking at um, and, and, for example, all the estimates of how much batteries we will need is, is in terms of gigawatt hours, uh, right? Whereas my, my numbers are saying thousands of terawatt hours are needed. Right. Right. So, <laughs> so the scale of the issue hasn't been hasn't been real. I mean, you can even no. see just in the number. So supposedly, you know, within ten years, we're not going to be selling uh, petrol cars in the UK, and yet uh, the, the the number of power points, you know, the charge points. That aside from the issue about how you actually provide that power, the number of uh, outlets is is minuscule compared to the number that's going to be needed. Yeah. So the origin of this work was I was having a cup of coffee with with my management. And they asked me casually, as they often do, 
how much minerals will be needed to service the gigafactories of Europe uh, in the next couple of years? And what I quickly found was, oh, oh this should be simple enough. <laughs> and I very quickly found that vast sections of that question have not been answered. Everyone is actually um, using numbers that they just plucked out of the air. They haven't actually, um, that there's no actual solid basis for it. All reports and all estimates of the future are based on uh, expansion. Uh, for example, next year will be 50% more than last year. Uh, and it's all about what the they think the market could supply. There is no visibility at all that we might have supply issues with the resources. Uh, they, 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 um, the, the basic fundamental philosophy behind the current system is there are no limits of resources at all. And anytime they need more, like there's a scarcity, the price will goes up and we'll just go and find more. Right. So here's the problem. The quality and size of deposits that we've been discovering uh, when you put it together over the last century, they've been getting smaller in size and the grade has been decreasing. Right. So all the good stuff's been taken. Uh, and so they're having to go further and further afield. They can go deeper into the crust, for example. At the moment, we go down to three kilometres, and so well, the next generation will go down to five kilometres. But the money involved to get ore out from that deep is much, much more than uh, what they do now. And, and so we've got a spiralling problem. We're spiralling out of control. And the current system is based on cheap resources that are abundant. We need cheap mm. energy. We need cheap steel. We need cheap cement. We need cheap copper. We need cheap aluminium. And if, if they're not cheap, right, uh, then the mechanics of the um, current system will start to break down and all evolve into a different kind of market. Because at the moment, we throw a lot of stuff away. Right. So hence the circular economy that you talked about. Before we get onto right. that, though, the, the rising cost of, uh, of mineral extraction, I mean, that's often given as the reason, uh, you know, uh, uh, as why we're going to move to alternate energy faster, because it's going because the rising price is going to drive, make it more economically efficient to, to look at alternative energy sources. Right. So the problem with, so I actually sort of met the energy return and energy invested question head on. Mm. And um, um, I, I can send you this report when it's released. And um, I'm, I'm told that I'll be given the final corrections tomorrow, which means in mm. a couple of days' time we can release the whole thing. You can have it. So what I looked at, for example, if we just said, how do we deliver 1,000 terawatts to the power grid for one year? How many power stations will we need for each power source? Right. So, so if we did coal, your average coal-fired power station will need 142 142 power stations to deliver that. But if we went to, say, solar PV, so photovoltaic, we will need 30,833 <laughs> okay. average power stations where you've got an array of solar panels, not just one, but an array of them, mm. right? And so uh, all we'll need 16,804 wind turbine uh, array farms where each farm has 20 windmills, right? So, so, so the effectiveness of the renewable um, um, oh, oh, yes, and solar and wind are highly intermittent. They, they, they vary all over the place. And so the grid doesn't age, and you can manage this. You need a, when you're getting to a large um, system, you need a power storage buffer. At the moment, that buffer is gas. We use gas to regulate supply and demand. But if we knock out gas and we have wind and power, uh, so, um, wind and solar only, you need a battery buffer. And if that battery buffer is um, got to be lithium-ion batteries, right? It's going to be ten times what our existing global reserves are wow. to have just a four-week buffer 
four weeks only for wind and solar. Just that. Right, so the scale of the problem is vastly out of proportion with the reserves we have on the ground. So the now, reserves present- that exist or the reserves that can effectively be uh, be mined? I mean, could we, could we have it, but it's just the, the, the cost dynamics are going to be so different. Global, what we call global reserves are what are uh, deposits that we know at the moment that, that are extractable um, using existing technology and are economic or close to economic. Mm. That's that's what we have now. Then we have resources where we have like a patch of mineralized ground that has minerals in it. Um, they're not economic at the moment. They haven't been explored properly at the moment. Now, remember, it takes about 20 years once you've actually gone through the process of discovering and mapping out a deposit, which which takes about 10 to 15 years, once you've got a deposit, taking it to an operating mine takes about 20 years. Right now, for every mm. thousand deposits we discover in exploration, only one or two become functioning mines. And of those mines, about half of them uh, go out of business because they're not viable. Right? So, so we... <laughs> And so uh, one of the big problems we have at the moment is uh, what do we have a shortage of? The big shortage is time. So, so let's say the cornucopians are correct, that uh, someone will think of someone, something. Someone will invent something. They'll discover something. It will take time to develop those resources and time to roll that technology up. Right. So at, at the moment, um, la- last year, we were um, 80, uh, um, 84.5% dependent on fossil fuels for primary energy. Right, uh, and so then you had nuclear, which accounted for um, I think it's about six uh, percent of that. Uh, uh, after that, and so renewables, you've got this this small shrinking pie. So if you want to have a renewable system, the vast majority of the existing system is fossil fuel dependent. But less than one percent of cars in the global fleet are electric vehicle. I think it's about 07 percent. Right. So, so if you and they have no idea, for example, what are they going to do with, say, um, la, um, uh, large ships and trains? They're starting to get their arms around what to do with, say, cars and trucks, trucks re- relatively recently. There's no and all of these things are viable. But the problem is when you scale them up and make them accessible to everyone, mm. then you've got practical, practical limits of available resources or available space. Uh, logistics, um, but then time, we're out of time. We're not going to do this in eight and a half years. Yeah. So it sounds like uh, ba- uh, batteries seem to be the big issue from, from what you're saying. I mean, is that, yeah. that's what's going to put a stop on all of this. That's that's the sore point at the moment. Uh, but even if we resolve that sore point, the, the, the really big issue is how do we generate the extra power off the grid? Uh, and, then, and then once we move on from batteries, it's do we have enough, uh, like each wind turbine, for example, has a two-ton neodymium magnet in it, right? So neodymium is is uh, a, a reasonably rare commodity. How much neodymium do we need to make uh, all the needed wind turbines? And that's actually going to be the focus of the next report. Um, solar panels are made from silicon and rare earths, but the silicon is not the stuff that you can just dig up at the local sandpit. It has to be high-grade silicon. Right, it's a very, very pure silicon, what we call silicon metal. And that's an entirely different proposition. And uh, that's actually uh, a reasonably scarce resource as well. So while things are still relatively small, uh, um, it's all okay. But when we start to actually upgrade everything, we're in, we're in trouble. So does that mean we're just going to be more dependent on oil? I mean, it's, it's going to continue longer. The, 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 it's a vain hope that we are going to move to renewables for the reasons well, that you've outlined. And we, we are going to have to stick with what we know and what we've been doing, which is obviously bad for the environment. 
This is this is the uh, uh, again the hopes and dreams of the conventional economic economists who really want to be left alone. <laughs> right, let's go back to oil. Uh, the other problem is um, I did a study in 2019 actually on oil um, because I wanted to understand the system that renewables are supposed to be replacing. Like, um, how reliable is it? How effective is it? Um, and and what what's the logistical chain associated with it? And I found that, again, none of this information really existed because it was all, uh, we don't talk about that stuff. It, it was mm. literally a case of, um, in Europe, they, they were happy to talk about critical raw materials, but they were not to talk about energy. And so I put my pirate shirt on and just wrote a report on oil. And the answer to that is we should leave oil before it leaves us, right? So aside from the problems, the environmental concerns of oil, you know, being a fossil fuel, it's becoming more expensive to extract, more steps in refining and what have you. And the reserves are actually, de, um, uh, the conventional reserves are depleting between 5 and 7% uh, um, per year. And um, something like uh, 70 or 80% of all uh, functioning fields now are in decline. Right, uh, And the new stuff that we're bringing online is not replacing the stuff we're using. So we've got a long-range problem with what we call peak oil. Now, peak oil has been discussed before. Um, that's the, and, that's the, that is the problem, isn't it? It's been discussed before so many yeah. times, and there's a. But I, it's, I'm not, not, it's been misunderstood. Mm, it's been misunderstood, mm. right? Like, um, for example, uh, Hubbard predicted that global oil would peak in the year 2000, but actually, conventional oil peaked sometime in the year 2005. But if you remember, after Hubbard died, you had the 1973 oil crisis and the 1979 oil crisis. So above ground problems pushed peak oil back five years. And then we had uh, a supply and demand separation of 2005. I actually make the case here that uh, then caused a spike in the market that later um, resulted in the global financial crisis of 2008. Right. That was a chain reaction that started in the oil industry three years earlier. Right. Right. And and so then fracking came in, tight oil. And that was the great white hope that saved everyone. And so uh, the fracking industry in the United States in particular accounted for 95% of all oil growth um, since that time to now. So the whole system is now dependent on fracking, which is not very efficient. And they've got to be drilling about 7,000 wells a year uh, just to maintain existing production because they deplete very quickly. And yet the U.S. seems happy, doesn't it, to accept the fact that they are going to be self-sufficient in oil. A lot of that is going to come from fracking. We see when the price of uh, of oil increases globally, we see the number of uh, uh, new sites increasing in the United States because it becomes more, because it, you know they reach the point where it's efficient to start doing it. So you get higher priced oil, but it's still being it's still being produced. I realize what you're saying; it's not as efficient. But we seem to be yeah, well, we seem to be coping with that. I guess the question is, how long can we cope with it for? Well, that's that's the that's the point. You've got the uh, thing where a lot of those fields are now starting to deplete, and the regions are starting to tap out mm, already. Uh, the U.S. Yeah. reserves are only three percent of the, of the total uh, of what we of reserves we have left. Yeah. Right. So always always is ever going to be a temporary thing. So so the, the Americans have basically ripped the oil out of the ground and then sold it to everyone else to dominate the world economically. What they should have done was extracted the oil out of the ground but kept themselves to rebuild the next after oil system but mm. they didn't you know this this is you know this was like lemming behavior of of, of conventional thinking thinking um off that cliff son um so um 
So oil, peak oil at the moment, and, and this is actually related to above ground problems. The, the price of oil needs to be high enough for producers to survive, right? But the oil price has to be low enough for consumers to access those oil products in a fashion where economic growth can happen, right? And when that window closes, there'll be no more economic growth and the oil industry will have to be transformed into something else that is actually not economic. Yeah, and that that, that is obviously going to apply not just to oil, but to all, all of those minerals that you talked about that are risky. Exactly. You, you, oil, oil's the master resource, but every single resource will go this same path, which is why I started with oil. Now, in 2000, um, 2018, in November, is the current date for peak oil. And so, Can we come again to 2018? 2018, November. Was okay. the current peak of oil production, and then it we've all been falling out. since then, and it's been falling since then. Now okay. we have had a we have had a pandemic in the way, of course, which will have uh, no, no, no. Just before the pandemic, mm. for twenty months before the pandemic, it's been decreasing, right? And um, before the pandemic hit, they did a study where nine out of ten fracking operations in America had um, cash negative um, negative cash flows. Mm. Right, because it's um, it's very expensive, and so they've been propped up by get this the derivatives market, the derivatives trading market is actually what's propped up the fracking oil industry. Uh, now that's an opinion. I actually haven't done the analysis to to prove that, but mm-hmm. um, that that is how we got this situation where they where nine out of ten are actually cash negative, but they're still functioning. Right. So well, we've we got so used to that, though, haven't we, with the. Uh, <laughs> with the investment in modern technology, it doesn't matter whether you're making a profit or not. It's the supposed uh, future that everybody is looking at. But you're saying that well, they're wrong on that because the future is fairly short term. You you talked about the uh, about the circular economy. Is that going to help? It always strikes me that you know when we talk about using waste and recycling it. Uh, you know, when I take my rubbish out in the morning and, and stick it in the recycling bin, I think, well, I'm doing the right thing. But really, is it making a, a big difference? And, uh, you know, we've got we've got our old mobile phones. Maybe we can use them to help provide the, the, the you know, the, the, the minerals that are needed for the next mobile phone. But I mean, it, is it really that efficient? Uh, uh, see, the circular economy is a stepping stone to something else. Right. right. Uh, with the linear economy where we dig stuff out of the ground, manufacture it, uh, throw it away and then put it in a waste uh, land, landfill, right? That's the linear economy. Uh, we, uh, the circular economy is attempted to stitch that into a circle. Now, the problem is uh, it focuses almost exclusively on recycling to the, um, not, no, and doesn't look at anything else. It's completely blind, for example, about the energy requirements of every industrial action and how all that will add up the amount of energy required to do all that is actually more than the yeah. energy they're actually coming in to do our um, existing things. So, so uh, the energy balance doesn't exist in it. It's also it'll be heavy logistics yeah. as well, isn't it? So where you've got yeah. a waste byproduct, uh, getting it to where it's needed yeah. to reuse it so the, the, could be huge. The phrase is, how do we get the right residue to the right process plant to get the best recycling outcome? Right, and so so we've got to hit all these problems. Like the most of the stuff that is designed and built today. It's designed for performance only. So it's not designed to be recycled. And so we tend, we like to throw things away. And when we try to recycle it, it's a big old mess because it's just not designed for it. Right. Mm. Uh, so what, what, what I'm, what I like to tell people is the circular economy is a, is a good starting point, but we're dancing around the recycling stuff and distribution and reuse and all that. But inside that system, there are three things that we need to 
completely rebuild from the uh, foundation up. One is energy. Like, uh, what, where do we get energy from and what do we use it for? Two is information systems. How do we uh, um, collect such a colossal amount of information and then use it, use it properly? The third thing is money or finance, which at the moment is the decision-making system of who gets what and who owns what and then who doesn't get what. Right. Um, so, so what we call money is in deep trouble at the moment um, because it's a fiat currency and we've been printing money to uh, save our bacon. So, but those three basic things inside the circular economy have to evolve to a completely new system, and then we can look at all the surface stuff like um, recycling and energy use. And, and at the heart of all that is a social, a change in the social contract. Right, right. Um, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I'm sensing that's going to be quite large, given that everything yeah. you've been describing. Yeah. But just just on this idea of recycling or reusing, I mean, the reason we're not doing it is because it's not built into the into the price of things. So we've got this throwaway culture. Yeah. But if the cost of materials becomes so huge, then surely uh, the focus is going to be more on how do, how do we recycle. And when someone's selling something or making something, they will be thinking about what's the cost we can get back from this through recycling, because it's going to be cheaper than going out and getting stuff at source in theory yes uh the existing system though has a lot of momentum and all parts of it have to go through all five stages of human grief before we actually start to uh consider problem solving uh, mm. and um so so we've, we've got the thing where well, most of the stuff that we use right or most things manufactured 99 percent of what's manufactured is thrown away after six months Right, and and uh, so the existing systems based on uh, people are isolated from the consequences of their decisions. They're isolated from. They have no idea where the raw materials come from that make the, uh, the stuff for the like their phone. And when they throw their phone away, they have no idea what happens to that phone after that, and they're completely removed from the downstream consequences of both those sets of actions. Right. So so you've got that side of things. When it comes to the point when um, things are more expensive. We're, we're going to have to sort of go through a, a period of evolution where old systems have to crash and, you, and the, the, they'll have to try and respond to new systems. And so we have like a period of disruption. Now, we could have started this 30, 40 years ago if we chose. We did have the information back then, right? But we collectively chose not to do it because it was easier. Now, what that means is we now have a very difficult problem to handle and not enough time to do it in. So when it comes to a point where everything becomes expensive. Yes, we're going to go through a period of um, uh, priorities will change, but in the short term, systems that we depend upon, we're just going to go offline. Uh, and, and then we're just going to collectively sit down and expect someone else to fix it. Because remember, we don't manufacture our own mobile phones or anything else. Like Australia, for example, has, has very little manufacturing capability. It all comes from another country. And so you have this global ecosystem that is, um, so dependent, so so dependent on 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 everything. So you said uh, a few moments ago that the the the, the financial crisis in two thousand and eight was largely uh, because we'd gone beyond the point of peak oil, whereas most people conventionally would say. I mean, Steve, you joined the conversation on this. Most people would say the two thousand and eight crisis was more to do with uh, the the banking sector misbehaving and uh, and prime home loans getting out of control. Uh, subprime home loans getting out of control. Yeah. So uh, that's the weakest so, link. So right, right. So so what we call the home the home market in the United States was the weakest link. 
So, so what actually happened? Uh, see, see, conventional oil peaked, and then then oil production went up after that when the fracking take took off. So it wasn't actually peak oil as such; it was peak conventional oil. Right, and we had like a, a three or four year time period where the new technology had to be come in and be adjusted. What happened is I've got this graph where I've taken the metal price for all metals that the World Bank uses to match the um, world economic um, um, economy. And I've overlaid them to show relative stability before the year 2005. And around January 2005, the price for everything blows out and you have amazing volatility. Right, so then you have like a dip where the global financial crisis is, but then the volatility comes back. Now, in January 2005, what happened was demand for oil increased, but Saudi Arabia was not able, Saudi Arabia in particular, uh, was not able to, well, global production didn't increase with demand. And what, I, what, 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 it, what it all came down to, Saudi Arabia is the swing producer for uh, the oil industry at the time. And they have what's called a rig count, how many oil rigs are actually operating. And the number of rigs that the Saudis brought online, their production actually fell for a bit. But while it was falling, they were desperately trying to bring more rings, rigs online and, and you have like a spike in the number of rigs that, that went up. So they're having to extra, um, do more effort to extract more oil out of their resources to meet production demands. So for a period of time, supply and demand of oil actually separated. And in that time, we had the run-up of oil price. It spiked. On top of that, you had a speculative bubble uh, uh, of um, on top of the oil price, which inflated it even further. So that oil price then reached a crescendo, and the global financial crisis is slated at starting when the oil price crashed, which I think is something like August 2008. Um, 2007 was the start of the actual crisis. Yeah. So uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, we'd be interesting. We should compare that later. Yeah. Yeah. So I've, I've got I've got the data. Uh, I'm not sure I've got the uh, dates right, but I've actually got the data uh, graphs to show uh, one on top of the other. The, the oil price was the marker for everything going sideways, hmm. right? And it, it all stopped like like overnight when they started printing money. QE one. Right. So so and since then the oil price has has been propped up with the with quantitative easing. Uh, the, the economy at large has been propped up with quantitative easing. And so it, in many respects, the system died in 2008. And since then, uh, the last, you know, the brain's dead, but the last, uh, the dinosaur is dead, but the brain hasn't realised it yet because the last of the blood is still being pumped right. up the neck. So we've got a speculative bubble happening mm. is what you're saying, isn't it, really? And, and the, 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 the uh, hard reality yeah. beneath the surface we haven't realised because it's lost in that in that speculation. So yeah. where does, so we, so when we come through that, uh, I mean, gee, this is well before we, uh, we, we, we get concerned about uh, uh, global warming, which is a side issue. Um, but I mean, the, it, it, it's interesting. We're more focused on global warming. We're not, we're not. We're not looking at this as an issue that we might just run out of resources, or they, they may, may become so expensive uh, that the the economy is just going to contract because we haven't got the resources that we are demanding. Yeah. So I've, I, I'm, I'm modeling things that that we, we've got problems in a spectrum uh, in seven groupings or seven spheres. And climate change, global warming, whatever you want to call it, there's a whole spectrum of problems, and that's just one sphere. Mm. Right. Uh, so the uh, oil energy depletion of fossil fuels is another sphere. The mineral uh, depletion where we don't have enough minerals to respond according to the plans that we actually want is another. The the problems that we will have with the um, Africa, uh, um, the, the, the um, food 
uh, food system, which is probably, uh, I don't know, 10, 15 years away, is another problem. So they're all coming together. And, and yes, the, the, we, we can fix things like the economics because we can just have a financial reset and just make a new currency and we can all agree not to be buggers anymore. Right, so so and, and and do things responsibly, but we can't fix the lack of mineral resources. We're on a finite planet, right? And so if we've if we've consumed all the easy to get resources, ergo we've now got to work harder to get other resources. Like you could say, let's go and mine the sea, you know, the sea floor. But if you did, right, consider for a moment the environmental impact of mining three thousand tons an hour off the sea floor. Right, that that would devastate you know the uh, all the flora and fauna th uh, through through that region, and so the technology to do that and the logistics to do that is so expensive and so much more difficult than what we do now. That is it worthwhile? <laughs> so, so we're we're getting to the point where it, it's all about we've got resources around us. In fact, there's quite a lot of resources, but they're not accessible with current technology. Like there, there is good copper deposits, for example, and gold deposits in like a eight or nine kilometres into the crust. Can we get them? Not right now. And are we ever likely to get them? Well, no, because our energy systems are in decline. Yeah. And our ability to replace them, our plan to replace them, is actually uh, less effective in terms of energy return and energy invested. So, so no. Yeah. It's going it's to get to the point where the amount of energy involved in getting energy yeah. is getting to the point such a point that yeah. it's just not yeah. worth doing. That's what yeah. you're saying, isn't it? So, yeah. so how do we? So what? So what's your conclusion from all of this? Then we just have to get used to dealing with less. I think that uh, the last 150 years, we're, we're like um, if you model the entire human race into a single person, that person will be an obese teenager that's addicted to crack, that's been told to lose some weight and kick the habit, mm. right? So we've had a uh, an amazing party for the last 150, 200 years. We've now got to become more responsible in our stewardship of the planet and less selfish. So we've got a fundamental social uh, evolution um, of the individual, but also a social evolution of us as a group, as a species, mm. right? That, that is in progress now, and it'll be required because the lesson of manners on the ground is so savage, right, that we'll have no choice but to see it. And what comes out the other side, human ingenuity will, will step up to the plate. But as it's doing that, the existing system of how we do things is, is going to have to radically change. But there is that danger, isn't it? I mean, what you're saying makes perfect sense. And the big concern to me is that we're putting all our effort into you know the next industrial revolution which we're saying is going to be you know driven by information technology and artificial intelligence that's all going to demand uh, processor power and you know from what you're saying there's just not going to be the resources to support that but, the, right. but the, there is the there's the danger because we've been here before of being seen as crying wolf because how long you know because of the whole peak oil thing now you're saying it was delayed and there's reasons behind that we were going to run out of food but then we we genetically modified food you know we have found a way so they've people who are not thinking too hard about this and just want to look to the future, which is society, you know, the approach of society as a whole, they're going to say, oh, yeah, all very interesting, but we will find a way because we always have in the past. Yeah, the problem is uh, in, in the past, people want quick uh, quick and easy solutions. Mm. They want to be told something in, 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 a, in a snapshot and they want it to be absolutely correct. 
but uh, uh, predicting things like peak oil, it was a uh, it was a can of worms. What we should have said back then was instead of saying peak oil will be on this date and it will decline from there and, by the way, we're all, we're all in trouble, what we should have said is we have a problem with the consumption of oil in a macro trend. Sometime in the future, we're going to reach a point when we will not be able to deliver the oil to the market that we demand and it will take several decades to transition away from that. So instead of actually focusing on a date, we should focus on the concept trend Mm. Now, that's the same thing for climate change, because you, you might notice that um, a lot of people will want, want a, um, uh, a feel-good snapshot about climate change in, in terms of, yeah, by, by 2030, we're going to be uh, 30% renewable. Uh, and also, by 2030, we're going to have uh, a 2% increase in temperature, right? N- none of that is um, very useful, Right. What is actually useful is we could say things like, well, we've got a trend in the environment where things are going in a particular direction. And that trend, you know, you know, there's no arguing with the trend, but you want to focus on details. Right. And so as a society, we've got to learn to get off the details, think for ourselves, handle more complex problems. But uh, there's a fire and forget mentality. If people want a quick solution, and they want someone else to fix it so they can go back to sleep. What actually has to happen is every last one of us now has to step up to the plate, think, think about some challenging stuff, change our behaviour in a way where we have to do more work for very much less outcome and do some hard work and accept the fact that we're grading into an era that will be very, very difficult to deal with. But we don't want to do that. So uh, let's leave the last word with Steve because he's been surprisingly quiet. And uh, never, <laughs> never, it's a, this is a unique experience for me, I have to tell you. But I mean, all of this means regulation, doesn't it, Steve? That we've, you know, just as we've talked about with climate change, we're not going to change our behavior. There needs to be some sort of regulatory change. It's very hard for a single government to do that, though, isn't it? But I mean, there's, uh, it, 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 it's, you know, raising a significant issue, which is, uh, which has got to be on the global agenda. Yeah, we, we, what we've relied upon, and this is the fault of neoclassical economists, is to believe the constraint is going to be the price system and that mm. the, the price system will focus both, function both as a constraint and an inspiration. So, uh, you know, if something gets more expensive, uh, people will consume less of it, but uh, innovators will find ways to provide a, a, a substitute for it. And the, the problem there is the thought that there's effectively infinite substitutability. You know, if something runs out, we can, we can find something else to take its place. Well, there are, and Simon would know this better than I do, there are some fundamental uh, minerals you can't replace. Um, and one of those, and I've got Simon to, back, uh, to, to correct me here if I'm wrong, is in terms of phosphate. Uh, the role of phosphate is an essential part of our biochemistry as, as well as part of our industrial agriculture. And if we, we, we simply can't be told, uh, you run out of phosphate, substitute it with something else. That's basically so genetically engineer your body so you don't need adenosine triphosphate to move your muscles. I'm sorry. <laughs> that, that's basically saying evolved to being a different species on a different planet. Uh, and it, it's the lack of acceptance of that which has got us into this situation. And yes, I do think when we realise how bad it is, the only way we're going to find a way out of it is by you know, effectively government control, which implies rationing per person on consumption of these items and a drastic le- reduction in the level of consumption as well. And it will be anything, it, it'll, it'll have capitalist firms in it, but it won't be what we would recognisably call a capitalist system. Simon? Growth-based economics is toast. 
Yeah. Uh, if, if we are in a contracting energy system, then we can't grow, right? Mm. So, so the idea of the uh, corporate uh, corporation now will have to transform to something else when our contraction-based economics is in play, right? Mm. Uh, and uh, we do need to work together on this because there's now not enough to go around. So if we don't work together on what do we do with things now to build a, a new system, right, it'll be give war a chance. Those, those <laughs> yeah. Good line. And <laughs> I, I, I think maybe on that that on that optimistic tone, we always finish on a high. On this podcast, we should uh, we should <laughs> we should leave it there. For once, Plenty I'm of, not guilty of the high line. Thank I know you, exactly. Simon. That's good. Yeah, you know, found someone who's even more pessimistic than you are, Steve Keen. Uh, but uh, for um, good reason, it's ultimately I am optimistic, right? But we are going to go through quite a savage uh, evolution through the next couple of years. Humanity will rise to the occasion, mm. right? But you know, what I'm saying is everyone will have to go through five stages of grief before they should get to the point where they'll actually start to do something. Okay, give us those five stages very quickly. Okay, it starts out with denial. Then it goes to anger. Then it goes to negotiations. Right? Then it goes to grief or, or, or depression. And you, you finally get to acceptance. When we get to acceptance... Right. Then we can have a real conversation right. and start to do something sensible. Right. But the, the bad news is we are at the first stage of those. And the you know it, a global pandemic, are, we have been fighting mm -hmm. to get back to exactly where we were before. Even that wasn't enough for us to think we have to change our ways. So uh, there's me finishing on a low note for everyone. There, I'll beat both of you there. Uh, good, <laughs> good to have you both on. Uh, we'll catch you again, hopefully, again soon, Simon. Great to talk. Indeed. No problem. Uh, next time, the economics of education. We saw uh, this week uh, massive grade inflation for uh, students taking their A-levels in the UK, which raises the broader question as more and more of them head off to university. Are too many people going to university? Is university delivering what we expect from it? Are we getting bang from the buck for the education system? Or is it just making things worse? We'll look at uh, how the education system could be worked next week on the Debunking Economics podcast. Back with Professor Steve Keane for that one. I'm Phil Dobby. I'll see you then. Thanks for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.